Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law of the Universe and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the Transcendental Meditation Technique. If you've meditated before but always felt like there was something missing, then it's time for you to learn how to practice TM. Visit tm.org to find a teacher near you. My guest today is Mariah Maynard. Mariah is a partner, mother, author, public speaker, and leader in executive relations. She's the Chief Relationships Officer of ISA Industries and co-founder of Local High Cannabis Marketing. She sits on the board of Local Digital Marketing and the Arizona Master Naturalist Association. She's trained in blockchain communication by digital asset designers to help convey the digitization process of physical commodities. Welcome, Mariah. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd love to hear about some of your work with this Arizona Master Naturalist Association. What's that all about? Yeah, that's a lot of fun. That's definitely where my heart is. So what we do is we help train leaders or master naturalists in all of the different arenas that you would expect a naturalist to be trained in. Flora, fauna, water, ecology. We do a a lot of work with the native tribal members here too because we do acknowledge that we do our work here on colonized lands of the indigenous people so it does mean a lot to us to be able to work with them and help bolster some of their community projects as well so what we do after we are all trained and we now have this education that we can pass on to the public we help businesses organizations government agencies create and develop projects that get people involved with the outdoors and help develop community science and ecological restoration projects. So what we do contributes data to different organizations that use them for conservational efforts, for legislation, development, those kinds of things. But it also helps just really get people involved and gets the community engaged, gets their hands back in the dirt so that they were firm believers that abundance is created through gratitude and reciprocity. So by being grateful for the natural resources that we have and then giving up our time and energy to take care of it is how we grow as people and as communities. So where did you first cultivate your passion for ecological restoration and what other ways are you pursuing those goals? Oh, that's a great question. I've I've always loved the outdoors, but I always felt like there was just this barrier because I chose a career path that wasn't naturally set, wasn't wasn't natural centric. I went into marketing, I went into executive relationships, I went into sales. So I didn't know how to give back to this place. I found so much so much comfort and so much solace in being in the outdoors, and I did a lot of reading 
an ethnobotany. It was just a habit that I developed. I learned how to garden. I just, I felt better being in the outdoors. And so I wanted to find ways to help other people find access to programs and things that they could do and develop relationships with people that shared the same values. What I'm doing is my role within the Master Naturals Association is I am the head of the communications chair. So I work with the internal organization and our messaging towards external organizations. I handle our website, our social media. So I've been able to utilize these skills that I have <laughs> behind a computer to get our message out and to get people more involved and more engaged. So I'm just really trying to find a synergy between what the skills I've developed and the, the things that I really love to do and the projects that I really love to give my time to. Oh, that's fantastic. And it seems like cannabis is a natural fit for doing that. So I'd love to like know what you find most exciting about the cannabis industry, both here in Arizona and more broadly across the country. Oh, yeah. Here in Arizona, there's it's really fun. We actually just accepted the cannabis altcoin. It's called Alta. And so that means that now cannabis businesses in Arizona can trade dollar for token on a block on a blockchain exchange. So now they get to circumvent the federal restrictions in banking so they can do a lot more with more vendors and more people. So now the opportunities for the Arizona cannabis market are just, are really limitless. So that's really cool. And the best thing about that is that local high marketing is the exclusive marketing option on the cannabis blockchain exchange. So we do accept the AltaCoin as forms of payment. And that means that even cannabis companies that don't that are across state lines can utilize our services because now by using the AltaCoin, they're trading commodities rather than cash for our marketing services. So that's really exciting. But for the cannabis industry in general, there's Man, when nothing is certain, anything is possible. It is, I call it the green rush. We have these really big players trying to come in and take this big market share. We have the mom and pop shops that are popping up that are going to be more boutique, your craft beer and liquor industry. But more importantly, now we have the question of regulation and government because it just went with recreational here in Arizona. It's recreational in quite a few states now. And the states are really starting to flex their individual power. So now the federal government is trying to play catch up so that they don't miss this cash cow that's happening for the driving motivator. But also now we're going to see the leaders, the, the, the cannabis businesses, the private sector of cannabis are really going to start driving some of these legislations because they have been so successful. So the race to be a leader in cannabis, not only in manufacturing and in processing, but also in sales and distribution, but Ultimately, it's going to be education. The people who like to smoke weed are not going to stop smoking weed anytime soon. The big hurdle in the cannabis industry is how do we get people who have never smoked weed or have a negative connotation of the cannabis industry or even utilize CBD products because of misinformation? How do we get those people comfortable with this industry so that way there's a larger demographic to sell to? So as a marketer, that's just a really exciting proposition. How do you see the cannabis industry evolving over the next decade, both here in Arizona and, and writ large nationally? 
Oh, um, that's a, that's a great question. It's going to evolve and it's not, the industry is industry. It's not special. It's going to follow the same types of cycles as any other commodity, heavily regulated commodity like alcohol. There's going to be the really large general providers, and then there's going to be your more micro boutique providers. So that industry is going to evolve in different, in the luxury and then in the common, in the commodity space. So it's, it's really just going to be dependent on the individual brands. So really the best thing I think about cannabis is all of the auxiliary opportunities that exist and those market developments. It's not just growing weed, processing it and selling it, but it's also about marketing it, transporting it, the banking for it, the, the events that are going on around it, the venues, the entertainment, the, the branding and the, the, the actual materials that we get to, to utilize. So the glassware, those kinds of things. It, it, there's so many ways for it to grow that there's, the only thing I can say for certain is that the development is just going to be massive growth in so many directions. What that looks like, I honestly think just changes with the seasons and every quarter there's a new leader, there's new changes. Um, so it's just, it's anybody's game right now. Oh, definitely agree. So I think there is a, there's the similarities to, to what alcohol and tobacco have done, but at the same time, there's definitely a real dichotomy since, you know, that we already have things like a PDLX, the CBD tincture that was FDA approved and surely we'll have other FDA approved things coming out of the cannabis industry, though that hasn't been their main focus like it has, say, with the, the nascent psychedelics industry. And so I'm wondering what you think about the importance of actually establishing a federal like mandate for medical regimes, because if we just went down the alcohol path, you've got even where they make Jack Daniels is in a dry county. So you've got plenty of dry counties throughout the South and other areas that would then effectively, if they mimic that and cannabis, it would prevent patients in those areas from being able to access their medicine, which for a lot of people can really be life affirming and if not life saving. Right, absolutely. And the that's where the collision between or the crossover between the lives of consumers and the how legislation and policy is going to be developed really starts to collide. Because in my mind, there's, there, there should be the freedom for governments, for, for towns, for cities, and for businesses to be able to say yes or no, we will or we will not provide these things for our residents. We don't want to sell alcohol here. We don't want to sell cannabis here. There are some people who generally, who genuinely want to live a life, a very clean, a very conservative lifestyle. And I think that they should have a space to do that. However, as far as patients go, that's been, that's just how I think that geographically we live in places where there are different opportunities. I think that it will, we will see a trend where patients who need that very specialized type of care, there are, there's, cannabis can do so many amazing, miraculous things. And so there are treatment centers that specifically use high-powered cannabis, synthesized cannabis that is designed to do very acute and specialized things. And so patients will have to go to those places to get that treatment is, is just, I think, what eventually it's going to come down to. But also, I think that the beauty of the versatility of the plant, the CBD, the THC, all of the other cannabinoids that we can extract and the, the, the specialized uses they have, that there will be a more widespread 
opportunity and it'll be much more commonly available to much more people in many more places. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. Like, yeah, some unlimited options out there. And yeah, nobody really knows how it's going to go. And everyone's set up for this whole really fractured system of like states randomly making a small medical regime or a quasi recreational medical regime like California had for years and then the full recreational regimes, essentially. I'm interested to know, you know, you brought up the Alta coin. I've talked to people about using blockchain on the sort of seed to sale logistics tracking side. What other ways do you foresee blockchain being able to help the cannabis industry? Ooh, that's a great question. So I think that number one, it's going to help solve the banking problem. Being able to have a decentralized banking system is going to help it over help the cannabis industry overcome its greatest hurdle. I think that additionally, it's going to help a lot with tracking. That's one of the things that as an uh, there's a difference between a cryptocurrency and an asset-backed digital commodity. The difference being that cryptocurrency has a very subjective value. It's about what the how much value it holds to the people that utilize it. But a asset-backed digital commodity means that this token represents this physical thing. So it, there's only one of that token. When it gets transferred, it doesn't make a copy like a cryptocurrency does. It sends the actual ownership when it's transferred. What that could do is it could def not only for the cannabis supply chain, but for most commodity supply chains, it's going to allow us to incredibly simplify the infrastructure process of being able to track things, to transport things, to transfer ownership. It's going to, to make it a lot simpler and safer for us to store value, move it around, and ultimately protect it from fraud and all of the other things that, that we do have to, that the commodity supply chain has to protect itself from. So I think that the cannabis industry is perfect for adopting this new blockchain, you know, infrastructure because it does have to, it has to exist and operate outside the traditional bounds of banking and that's where it's all going to start because if you can't if you can't accept or send funds you don't have a business yeah it's been pretty wild just like the wild west so many people i met early on in my time in the cannabis industry they'd always be talking about how they had a, a backpack with a hundred thousand dollars and their passport <laughs> on it ready to just leave at a moment's notice if, if things went bad yeah um, so it's interesting to see a pre-legalization tech workaround work towards that so i'm interested to know beyond the cannabis industry given your familiarity with blockchain what are you most excited about what do you see as the most impactful and important potential benefits of blockchain technology Oh, I love this question. So you hit the hit the nail right on the head there when you said it's like the gold rush. So historically, what happened with the gold rush was everybody caught wind. There's lots of great opportunity out west. So all of these gold miners were the first ones to hit the territory, and they had to determine whose territory was whose. And they created this big map and they put it on a tree and it was like where you went to determine that this was Bob's land, Paul's land, and the gold that was harvested from there belonged to them. So when the lawyers and the judges came, eventually made their way out west, they needed to set up legislation and infrastructure, those kinds of things. And so they just utilized this really informal ledger that these gold miners had created to establish ownership. So that gave it this sense of it was official and it was legitimate. It legitimized this, this entire process. So 
what's happening all around the world, especially in third world countries, is that there are still very illegitimate ledgers that exist for billions of people. And what that means is that they're incredibly vulnerable to gangs, to terrorist organizations, because they can offer a sense of protection from other gangs and corrupt governments and terrorist organizations saying that these, yes, okay, these are your cows. I'm going to take these because they're mine now. They're the cost for protection. So if that guy over there comes over here and tries to mess with your cows, you come tell me and I'll take care of it, right? It's that old school mob mentality. But it's happening all over the world to billions of people who don't have the ability to legitimize their own assets through through legal processes. It is an intentionally intense, bureaucratic, expensive process that most people do not have the ability to overcome, right? To say that these cows are my cows, this land is my land, and I have a certificate of ownership is much more difficult than especially Americans come to realize. So the blockchain technology does pose this really amazing like Indiana Jones opportunity for us to go into these to these places and take these illegitimate ledgers and give these people the opportunity to have this certificate of ownership to protect themselves, protect their families, their properties, their assets. And now they have a real opportunity to participate in trade. And now they're their value is not just how much money they have, but how much assets they, they possess and being able to trade those for goods and services that will ultimately benefit their lives and generations to follow. Oh, fantastic answer. So I'd love to know on a slightly more personal note, you have all these different roles and how do you balance all of that? <laughs> That's a great question. So I definitely wouldn't have been able to do any of these things unless someone taught me how to do it and how to balance it. I was incredibly fortunate to train and learn under the magi of a religion called natural spirituality. And what that training did for me, including a 10-day, what's called a Vipassana, it's a 10-day silent meditation after going through trainings and learning the, the teachings that they had to offer, it really gave me what I needed to find the strength that I always had within me to navigate all the things that I wanted to do. Me personally, I would, I was in dire straits for many years. I had been hospitalized for severe intense anxiety, for depression. I had been suicidal for many years. And I, my father is, is publicly incredibly bipolar. There's a lot of mental illness that runs in my family and I have a six-year-old son. And so I wanted to, to do something about that by, by being able to stop and to be still and to embrace the grace of clarity to know that what I'm doing doesn't have, there doesn't have to be a why behind it. I just have to know how to do it and to do it the best that I can until it's time to be done and know when to walk away and know and to be satisfied with the best work that I can and to remember that I am just merely a human and I'm allowed to, to, breathe and rest and eat and sleep and cry and laugh and work. And it's not about 
what I believe or what I believe to be right or true, but it's about the efficacy of my model. It's about how efficient am I in the work that I do and how much value do I add to the people around me. The day-to-day, -day, I just like to stick to a routine. I believe in running daily programs, waking up, and I like to exercise early in the morning. I walk my dogs. We drink lots of water. We like to eat healthy foods. I like to try and meditate every day, journal, and it's funny right actions equal the right results and it's easy to know oh yeah if i did all these things i would be really happy and well balanced but actually doing them and doing them consistently is the hard part so i find i just have to keep doing it till i get it right and then keep doing it some more until i can't get it wrong oh love that philosophy <laughs> so i'd love to know how is a failure or at least an apparent failure set you up for later success and do you have a favorite failure oh god yes i have a favorite failure i was 22, 22, and I had just been given my dream job offer. I had been working with a cannabis company on brand development. I had helped them uh, grow some new strains. We had gotten a new property on the Oregon coast. I was given the opportunity to go run the store and design it how I wanted to. I could live at the store in this attached living quarters. It was 50 feet from the beach. Um, and it was everything I ever wanted in a job. And then I went home and I realized that I was pregnant with a child that came from a man who I who was not meant to be a father. And so I had the choice to raise the, have and raise this baby by myself or to go or to you know have an abortion and to go and live the life that I wanted to live, live my dream life. And I was tortured for months and I was miserable and I had my son and I the, my biggest regret is that I didn't celebrate that process more because I was struggling so much in trying to decide if that's what I wanted for my life or not. So my biggest failure was in just staying on this fence of indecision during the most important time of my life, during the most precious time in my life. So what that allowed me to do was to find the freedom and really embrace the freedom of making choices of that knowing that I just have to choose what I want and then go after it. I suffer from decision fatigue. So because I'm constantly trying to make choices, I'm constantly trying to do the best thing. What's the most effective way? What's the most efficient way? I move very quickly. And sometimes I just get really overwhelmed. And so that that failure, the failure to to recognize the moment and to appreciate the moment for what it was, was such a painful lesson in in appreciating my the beauty that is in front of me, that my life has just grown to be incredibly rich. So powerful, that's incredible. So I'd love to know who have been some of your heroes uh, throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? Oh, that's a great question. I think two people really come to mind, but there are so many. One was a woman named Catherine. When I was 16 years old, I was homeschooled in Hawaii, so it wasn't all bad. But uh, she was an incredible woman. She had suffered incredible traumas, but she also spoke 26 languages and she taught underprivileged children and she did so many amazing things with her life and she was such a deeply genuinely happy person that she taught me how to take the things that had happened to me in my life and my own traumas and how to integrate them and to find 
joy in them and to find joy in giving other people better experiences and making that my life. That was a real turning point for me. And the second would be my teacher, Daryl Anton. His name is Doc. He is one of the wisest, kindest, most just amazing souls I've ever met. And he took me in when I felt that I had nowhere to go. And he allowed me to be still and gave me a safe place to learn and grow and the opportunity to do what most people won't so that now I can live a life that most people can't. Wow. They both sound amazing. 26 languages. I can't even, can't even imagine. This woman can read and write ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. She was insane. (laughs) (laughs) That's so wild. Wow. Wow. So I'd love to know what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made and feel free to interpret the word investment as broadly as you like. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. I, for one, I give I tell everybody just take a week and learn about stocks. I have made good financial investments and I've made a variety of them. I am not a financial advisor, so I won't tell you any of them, <laughs> but I've learned how to make my money work for me. And that has really changed my life. So I do encourage everyone to do that. But mostly the best investment I've ever done was I stopped working and I invested in just myself. I invested in learning what I would do if I didn't have to do anything. What do I want to do? What do I enjoy doing? What am I good at doing? The greatest investment I ever gave myself was my 10 day silent Vipassana was just diving into and only myself and my inner world so that I could have a deeper and more genuine understanding of myself so that I could better interact with the world and have deeper connections with the people and experiences around me. Yeah, my sister is a bit like she is a huge Vipassana fan. She's um, always encouraging everyone to do it. And I, I just got into TM early this year after years and years of thinking, oh, it sounds pretty cool. And then it was definitely like the missing piece for me and having kids now and just so many different responsibilities. I'm like, oh, 10 days away. It sounds like amazing. But it's oh, when would I when would I find the time? But yeah, I definitely would love to do that someday. Yeah, it's it's I, I I agree with your sister. Everybody should do it because I think the most amazing phenomenon is the fact that and everybody runs into this, you just start freaking out. Just freaking the heck out, losing all your jollies, just trying <laughs> because and, and all of the only thing that's being asked of you is to sit down and be quiet. Sit still and be quiet. All of your meals are provided. You're in a safe place. It's usually a beautiful place. Nothing's expected of you other than just sit there and shut up. And that becomes terrifying. And that experience, I think, is something everyone should go through to just to see the jewels that are on the other side. Yeah, so powerful. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Great question. One of them is called To Speak for the Trees by Diane Beresford Kroger. The other one is called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I think, honestly, I needed to learn how to human. So how to influence friends, no, how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie was an incredibly powerful book for me. And it has lessons that I still take with me today. I have a birthday book. I write down everybody's birthdays that I learn. And it has, I've actually closed deals because I've sent handwritten birthday cards because of suggestions in that book that are simple, but they really do change your life. 
Oh, yeah. It's a classic. And if you haven't read that, I can't recommend it highly enough. And made, what, like almost 100 years ago now. And most of the stuff in there is timeless. There's certainly some dated concepts and everything. But the underlying things is it's really incredible. And just catch more flies with honey than vinegar. The message rolling through there. But yeah, great things like you're talking about, like the birthday cards and other things like that. Just those small, tiny moments of recognition, small moments and bits of connection is really I think what makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. And just remembering that no matter what context you find yourself in, whether you are in a professional setting, education, friends, casual, whatever, people are people, man. We all just want to feel heard. We want to feel respected. We want to feel wanted. We, we want to feel like people care. And so if you can give that to people in the right context, that you can do anything. Yeah, I had a guest on the other day and he said something I'd never heard before. And he talked about listening people into existence. And it's all about crafting that level of recognition that everyone just takes for granted, but that everyone craves so much. Everyone needs some sense of belonging and significance and just holding space for someone and, and really listening can just make such a tremendous difference in people's lives. Absolutely. I think one of the most profound ways that I've learned that lesson, and I love that saying, listening people into existence, wow, is my work with the um, indigenous tribes out here in uh, Arizona with the Master Naturalist Association. Something that we do have to be aware of and that we receive training on is just this kind of this white savior complex that people fall into, even with the best of intentions. And I, as a, as a marketer, I wanted to help communicate some of these projects that these um, tribes were working on just to help them get more traction, get more donations, those kinds of things with the best of intentions. But what I forgot to do is I forgot to meet them where they were and I forgot to listen and I forgot to, to, to really respect the fact that there are, there's so much more knowledge and wisdom and experience in the realm that I was entering that I had to offer that I, I lost an opportunity to help a lot of people. And we've been doing a lot of work to listen and to shut up and to do what we can to provide, to provide the resources that they need without offering them and just being there when they're ready to come ask. Oh, definitely. I think that's so powerful. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Ooh, good question. I think it would say what other people think of you is none of your business. <laughs> because I, I feel that all of the personal journeys I've been able to bear witness to, all of the amazing evolutions of the people around me that I've been able to be a part of, their real turning point, the real, that moment when they step into themselves and really become the best, the best them they could be, is when they stopped listening to, when they stopped worrying about the feedback they were going to get, what people were going to say, what people were going to think. People just, they don't, feel like they have the freedom to change and that limits so much so much progress and so much personal evolution. I tell that to people all the time. What other people think of you is none of your business. That's all about them. It's all about their stuff. And you and my job is to focus on where my energy goes because that's just where where, where progress is going to flow. So that's what I would do. That's my billboard. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yeah, I think it's 90% of life is just projection, right? It's anytime someone acts out in any certain way, like it's really 
about them and not about you. And it's always funny because everyone just worries about what other people think, but it's because everyone's worrying about what other people think. People actually aren't really thinking about you. <laughs> like People aren't really judging you that much or people just, they just freak out over all the different things, all the different ways people could perceive them. But the fact of the matter is like, there's been essentially an infinite number of you in the world because everyone has a different perspective on you just from, you know, the accumulation of experiences they've had with you. We're all just on these like long form addition equations where we're all just combinations of every single person we've ever met and reflections of those experiences we've had. But when we, when we worry about it, that's just, you forget yourself. And I think something like Vipassana and other forms of meditation is a great way to counteract that. And maybe I'm not a huge like purveyor of stoicism because i think emotions are a very important part of the human experience but i think taking a little bit from that of hey don't give a fuck what other people think about you and just get on with your life and and that's what's really freeing because so many people just hold themselves back oh what will this person think or especially when you get into relationships people stop mm -hmm. being themselves and they try to be the person that the they think the other person wants them to be but they actually don't know what that person really wants because right. they've stopped connecting to them and then you end up with two people that just have these fictitious ideas of the other and they're trying to cater to that rather than being present with who each other really is absolutely and i think that's a great point i one of the things that were the ideas that really solidified for me in my vipassana was that there really are three states of existence either in memory and imagination or in presence you're either thinking about something that has happened, something that could happen, or you're focusing on what is happening. So that was always, you know, an incredibly powerful thing for me. And as far as relationship goes, I think the the only thing I have to add is that my my partner and I come from a really just a strew of divorces and his family has been, you know, t together and happily married, but there's always room for progress. So one thing that we've done that really helped strengthen our relationship and helped us to stay connected and not just project is that every morning we ask each other three questions. What are you letting go of today? What are you grateful for? And what are you going to focus on? And by having those things, it really helps us keep each other accountable and keep and support each other and the things that we want to do and achieve the goals that we have as individuals and as a team. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's so beautiful. I definitely love to adopt that someday. That's excellent. I've never heard that before, but I love things like that. Just little ways that people in relationships can connect because either people get lost in the relationship, they get lost in each other over identifying with each other or completely becoming estranged and not being able to walk away from it, whether it's because you have children together or you have some like legal requirement to stay together. And so it's even with the divorce rates being what they are, whether that's a good thing or not, because plenty of people aren't made for each other, but you get into it and whether it's the best thing for you, I think it's good to know, you know, when to walk away, but it's also good to know that there are actual tools out there. One of my good friends, you know, he and his girlfriend have been having some issues and I was sort of giving him some different advice and was like, hey, you should be in therapy and you guys will be fine. You guys really have like really minor problems, but yeah. without a third party, they can be like, hey, this is how you navigate through this. But you tend to make mountains out of molehills relationships and then things can just spiral out of control when it's like, hey, if you just had even a few therapy sessions, like you, you could just get the tools that you need or find some worksheets that maybe ask questions like what you and your partner ask of each other each day. And so it's you can become sounding boards, you can be more comfortable and present with each other and not fear that the other is going to judge you or cast you out because you think a certain way or because you're insecure about something in the relationship. 
Right. Absolutely. And that's, you know, I think we talked about it before. There's, you can communicate all you want. You can talk all you want, but until there's comprehension, until that you meet the person where they can hear you, you're just wasting your breath. And it's, I, I absolutely agree that you have to have a third party come and it's just incredibly helpful to have a third party because life is just about perception. Two people can look at the same work of art and see two very different things, just the same way that two people can be going through an experience that feels like a hurricane, but then a third party comes in and be like, hey, no, you guys, it's just raining. Like, it's okay. So being able to bring in that perspective of realism and remove the bias is very helpful. And I also just, I believe. I know this is going to sound cynical, but I don't believe in soulmates. I don't believe in true love. I believe that love is a chemical reaction that happens in your brain to help promote procreation so that our species can survive. I think that good marriages and relationships and families are developed and built through the practices that we're talking about. People fall in love, but people don't stay in love. They don't stay in free fall. There's the idea of falling means that there's eventually going to be a landing. But if you can build something that feels good to land in, that's something that feels good enough that you can, once you hit the ground, you can grow roots. That's something that I strive to grow, not to hit some ideal of this romantic love that I'm perfect for him and he's perfect for me and we were meant for each other, but instead that we both love and care, respect and trust each other enough to get through the hard times, enjoy the good times together, but ultimately help each other grow so that we can accomplish the things that we want to do with our lives while we have the time to do them. Yeah, I think our culture, it's so over romanticized with things like all you need is love and things like that, where it's not teaching you how to really stick that landing. It's like once you've fallen in love, like now what? Because even once that honeymoon period is over in a relationship, whether or not someone gets married, you don't really have something to move forward from. And, and really what's missing there, I think, is that communication leading to understanding. Because that's why I think things like, you know, learning like love languages is so important because you could be someone that just needs physical touch. And if the other person doesn't, like the, you, they might find you annoying or too touchy-feely, or maybe you're someone who's, you're all about acts of service. So you're cooking, you're cleaning, you're doing the dishes, and the other person just does not give a shit about that. But that's how you express love. Like, they're never going to see it. And if, if they really want gifts or they really want words of affirmation, you think that's like materialistic or you think that's like an insecurity or something, then you're never really going to connect with each other. And to me, it's we do such a disservice in this country by not teaching those things to, to children because it even works with children because up to a certain age, every child's primary love language is quality time. There's no substitute. It does right. not matter. Right. There's, there's, yeah. There's obviously kids that are, they're more into physical touch. Like you can tell that at an early age, like they love hugs. They need that. Obviously most kids like loves gifts, but that's not like as much a love language thing <laughs> as a bribing kind of thing. It really is about quality time. They've done studies that show that, it's not even about the amount of quality time. It's about the quality of the quality time. And so even if you're only spending 15 minutes a day with your child, you're a super busy executive or something. If it's uninterrupted, if you're not looking at your phone, if you're totally 100% there and focused, you will get better outcomes than spending an hour with your child doing something they're not into or you're checking your phone every five minutes because kids know that stuff. And that's right. the thing now is like kids grow up 
And from from the time they can see, what do they see? They see all these people with these really cool little rectangles and yep. screens. And they're like, oh, what is that? Oh, and the ones who are really woke kids, they're like, oh, that's where it's at. I need to acquire screens. Screens are important. Everyone loves screens. And it's this very primal thing, right? You mm -hmm. almost just like you imagine it back just being chimpanzees doing the same thing. And you're like, it's a very just instinctual thing. It's, oh, yeah, I want the stick. I want this fruit. I want this other thing that everyone is coveting. Monkey see, um, monkey do. Exactly. It's so incredibly basic. But when you can just get down to it and spend that quality time with a child, it takes so little time when mm -hmm. we have so little time these days anyways. But you yeah. can really make a big impact with the right level of focus and the right level of quality there. Absolutely. Dr. Shafali Sabari, T-S-A-B-U-R-Y. She has some great books, materials on what she calls conscious parenting, which I think is one of my favorite parenting philosophies out there that has a lot to do with what you're talking about. And I like, I agree. I think that the concept, like the, take the idea of a wedding, like an American wedding. My, I was in the maid of honor, my best friend's wedding. And it was the most stressful time in her entire life. That wedding was not for her. It was not for her and her husband to have time to celebrate love for each other. It was to show all of their friends what it was that they were doing and the beautiful venue that they had. And so it was, but and it seemed like the finish line, right? It's every, you get married, you fall in love, and then you guys make it all the way to the end and you get finished and you get married. And then what? Spending all of this money on a big party when you could spend that money on a home or a college education, those kinds of things, you know, trips or investing in a business that you guys want to start together. There's so many other ways that you can get your relationship set up for success. But and most and lastly, I know we're running out of time, but I just wanted to make the note that my my partner and I, I've fallen madly in love with my partner every day for who he is because I take the time to see what it is that he who he loves to be. And in so many different he's different in so many different circumstances and contexts and times of day and times of the year. And he's just, and, and he's done the same thing for me. And so we've taken the time to be the best partners that we can be to each other, but that doesn't happen overnight. It's taken time and it's taken work and it's taken mistakes and learning from them, but trusting that we, when we hit those mistakes and we hit those hurdles, the goal is for us to make it on the other side stronger together. Yeah, I think one of the most underrated skills in relationships is, you know, just the ability to disagree. It's super easy to have fun when everything's going well, when you're getting along. What about when someone loses a job or you get into an argument or something like that? And being able to successfully de-escalate and empathize uh, with your partner is a massively underrated skill and just something we don't teach in this country. And I think we'd just be so much better off if we taught children, taught young adults, teenagers, you know, how to build good and healthy relationships since so few people have it modeled for them. You think about as a Zennial, my parents were baby boomers. They grew up with parents who went through the Great Depression. And it's, I can still see like the trauma of the Great Depression in my parents just because of what was never resolved. And nobody really started trying to break the cycle of anything until Zennials and Millennials came along. We're like, oh, actually... Yeah, I'm not going to spank my kids. And then it's that's not enough. I actually want to be a positive and conscious parent and actually make a better life for my children through kindness and empathy and teach them the thing, the tools that they need. So it's not just centuries and millennia of really, which is like primate violence. It's just oh, yeah. been handed down and it's okay. We've been around 
for thousands of millions of years in one form or another as we've evolved. And it's been violent for millions of years. And now here we are at the turn of this millennium. And you finally have people like, hey, wait, we could just stop this. And we could do something totally different. And you still have those people that are like, oh, I was spanked as a kid, but I turned out fine. It's, no, you spank your kids. <laughs> like you, yeah. you obviously didn't turn out fine. And yeah, so it's been wild, but encouraging to see those shifts. And I feel like Gen Z is poised to do even better with that because there's some amazing kids out there doing some great things. I'm excited to see what that generation does as parents as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, uh, like you said, it's it's an individual journey. You know, evolution doesn't happen on a macro scale. It happens on a micro scale. And that the only reason that you and I and our generation have been able to address and break these generational, you know, curses or binds that we have is because that we have the freedom and the comfortability, the security to do. We don't have to worry about where our next meals are coming from. We don't have to worry about violence and getting, I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry about getting raped at work anymore. I don't have to worry about those kinds of things. So it's, that gives me the time, my brain, the time and space that it needs to ask those questions. Do I want to be the parent my parent was? Do, do I want to do things differently? Because doing things differently takes energy, it takes skill, it takes time and patience. And that's only something that's afforded to those who have that to spare. And so I think as important as it is to do those things for ourselves and for our children, I think it's also important to remember to have grace for those who haven't had that freedom, who haven't had that time and those privileges to be able to reach that spot where they can do that for themselves and for their children as well. Oh, definitely. I totally agree. So this has been just a fascinating and enlightening conversation today. And so this brings me to my last question. What is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? <laughs> That's a great question. The kindest thing anyone has ever done for me was, <laughs> I know this is going to sound silly, but honestly, the kindest thing anyone's ever done was me, was I was kind enough to love myself. I was kind enough to to know that I didn't have to do things the way that things were being there was another way of doing things the kindest thing I did for myself was trust myself to to try something new to be able to accept the kindness other people were giving me there have been people who have been very kind to me throughout my life but I wasn't able to see or accept or appreciate that kindness because I never felt that I deserved it in order to feel that love and accept that love and experience everything that people were trying to give me, I had to give first give myself that kindness and extend it to myself to find that within me. Oh, I love that answer. And definitely something more people should practice, certainly. It's probably one of the, the biggest issues in the world is just people not being kind enough to themselves to start with, let alone how they treat other people, because it all flows from there. And then it just gets into that projection. Thank you so much. It's a great question. You got lots of great questions. And I so appreciate um, your time. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has just been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Pacifico. And I wish you lots of luck. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. 
For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yes.